good morning to you. You can have a seat, all right? Welcome to Grace Point Church. One of our three worship gatherings, the early birds, all right? You all get here, get early, and hopefully get uh, fresh bread in the morning. Um, uh, you know, some of you have asked how, what's the difference between the three services in my messages, and I think every one of them is a bit, bit different. But I would say that the first service is you get the unrehearsed, uh, fresh bread version, okay? So it may be a little doughy at times, too, uh, but please uh, bear with me on that. Welcome to, uh, to a worship focus month that we have going on at Grace Point. It's hopefully not just a month of focus. It's hopefully creating a lifestyle of focus as we talk about a journey, an expedition, if you will, of a journey that we are on in our faith to grow in our faith. And part of that, one of the absolute fundamentals is a worship. That worship element that must be a part of our life. And um, as you think about over the course of your life, how many worship services have you attended? Now, if you were like me, you went to church nine months before you were even born, then that can add up to quite a few. Now, if you're a newbie, welcome. Great. You don't, it doesn't take you long to count. Yours. But I went back and tried to count up after 41 years of going to church pretty much all my life. I went to one church, one service, once a week for 41 years. It would be 2,132 worship services that I've attended. Now, that's just very sparingly because we were more than a Sunday morning only kind of church and we were more than a Sunday morning only kind of family. We would go on Wednesday nights. We would go on Sunday nights. If there was a revival and a pew packing night, we'd go that night. You know, we'd, we'd always be there whenever there, the doors were open uh, on Sunday morning or Wednesday night or whenever it was. So if, then if you add in my time in seminary and you add in the times that I've, I've been in the mission field, I could probably, I'm, I'm topping somewhere 10,000 different worship services that I've attended. Now, the question is not how many worship services when you get to heaven have you attended or were you a part of. But can you really think about the 10,000 or 2,000 or 100 worship services that you've been a part of? Can you really, can you, can you, can you, can you get a handle on how many really changed you? Can you, can, you, can, you, can you even begin to label and, and factor in, out of those thousands or hundreds or however many it may be for you, how many worship services absolutely transformed your life? And I, I would be in, embarrassed to say that I can't count a lot of them. Now, I would say that there have been a lot of changes, whether they're micro changes or macro changes. There have been tremendous amounts of changes. I gave my life to Christ. I felt God's calling to Christ. I felt God's calling to ministry. I, there were so many things that happened in a worship setting, gathering, if you will. But there's a lot of people in this world that look at their worship services, look at their worship gatherings, and they go, live with, live without. Live with, live without. Take it or leave it. If it's convenient for me, I'll go. Uh, Barna did a study a few years ago, back on, in 98. He uh, found that a third of the people who regularly attend worship service, a third, said that they've never experienced God in a worship service. Now, that's, that's sad that you would, you would find a place, a, a building, a, a time, a, a people, and, and it's all centered on God, and, and somehow in that God-centeredness, God doesn't necessarily show up for a third of the people. And of that same people... Uh, 44% said they hadn't experienced him in the past year of those who had experienced him. 
So it's, it's, it's kind of a, a sad testimony, I think, to many of our worship gatherings. But, but here's what one person said, Ann Ortland, in her book, Up With Worship. She said, weekly worship is the highest corporate act of the body of Christ. It is the visible demonstration that He is priority one to us and to our church. We must pray over it, labor over it, and shape it. We must make our building right for it. To worship as well as we can, undistracted, inspired, and uplifted. We must center our church schedule around it. No individual will linger outside chatting. It's the first priority of priority one. It's the creme de la creme. When you come to the topic of worship, I hope it's the creme de la creme in your faith. I hope that this gathering is only a launching pad for a week of gathering in God's presence. That I hope that this worship experience is only the beginning of a tremendous week-long worship experience in your life. It was the first, it happened with the first family in the book of Genesis. And if you go all the way to the book of Revelation, you'll find that worship is in the very end. From the beginning to the end, God desires that all the peoples of the earth worship Him. The Bible even says, let the nations be glad. And that word glad is the idea of a worship. He wants every people, every tribe, every tongue, every nation to be about worshiping Him. It is the creme de la creme. It is the priority one of priority one. It is the first priority. Think your Bibles will be finding the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, it's in the Old Testament. The largest prophetic book in the Old Testament as far as, as, as chapter and verse that, that we have. So it's a major prophet for us. And in, Acts, excuse me, in Isaiah chapter 6, we find a testimony of Isaiah. In a dark day, in a nation's very, very dark day, we find Isaiah rising to the top and becoming a major player in a nation. He actually ends up serving as a prophet under four different monarchs. That's a pretty influential individual. His life goes for a long time. He starts as a prophet early under, under the king Uzziah. And in the midst of that, that living under the king Uzziah, king Uzziah dies. Now this is, this is monumental. Because king Uzziah had been king for 52 years. For an entire generation plus, they've only known one leader. He became king as a 16-year-old, the youngest king ever of the nation of Israel. And yet he rises and he stays king for 52 years. All Isaiah knew, maybe all his parents really knew, was King Uzziah and how he had shaped a nation. But King Uzziah became arrogant in his, uh, in his lofty monarchy. And he became a little arrogant and proceeded into the temple and kind of proceeded to do things that he was not allowed to do. And he contracted leprosy and ended up dying of leprosy. So you can imagine as they see their king die and the kingdom fade away of the monarchy that they've had for so many years and Uzziah is gone. Now the state of the nation is tragedy and mourning. And so we pick up the story with Isaiah growing up in chapter 6 telling his testimony of his call to be a prophet and what really revolutionized his life. And this is what I want to say about worship. I'll say it again and again and again. Worship ought to revolutionize our life. It ought to change us. We, we, we ought not be here today 
here next week and leave the same. We ought not meet with God on a daily basis and leave the same. It's one of the most transforming elements of the Christian faith is an act and an experience of worship. And that's exactly what happens in Isaiah. Isaiah, again, if you look at the first five chapters, you'll find him recording his testimony of a nation literally deteriorating. Deteriorating in their prosperity. They were t- deteriorating in their morals and their values and their, and their looking to God, but they were prospering in houses and lands. Does that sound like any other country you might know of today? So here they are in all their prosperity, but they're forgetting God. And Isaiah is, in chapter 5, just stricken with this tremendous burden. And, and then all of a sudden, King Uzziah dies. And as the nation is mourning, this is, this is the very first words out of chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, a 52-year reign is over. A nation in a state of mourning. It's a different day. It's a new day in Israel. And where will it go? And so many believe that Isaiah is in the temple at this point, And he's mourning his death. The death of King Uzziah. But it's not the death of King Uzziah that ought to be the focus of his life. I want you to hear what I'm about to say. Worship happens when we allow God to interrupt our life. Worship happens when we allow God to interrupt the things that are consuming us. But when we push God aside and we don't allow Him to interrupt us, then we're in trouble. We miss worship. We might go through the function We may attend the services. We may attend the gatherings. We may even do some kind of worship altar in our own home. But if we do not allow God to interrupt our lives, then we will miss the beauty and the experience of worshiping Him. In the year that King Uzziah died, look at the very next phrase. I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord. That's a phrase that I don't think you can, you can unpack too, too slowly. I mean, that's a phrase that we, we, you can't skip over because I don't know too many times that I show up to worship that I see the Lord. But I think that's what I want to see. I want to have that relationship with God. That when I show up, that whether it's in a very spiritual, mystical way, and nine times out of ten, that's what it's going to be. And 99 times out of 100, it's going to be that mystical experience of when I am in the midst of my life of mourning or rejoicing or whatever I am, the year of King Uzziah dying or whatever it is for me, but somehow I see the Lord. And all of a sudden now, mourning over the king, the dead king, no longer becomes the focus, but I am seeing the alive king of kings. God just interrupted King Uzziah's mourning. God just interrupted him in the midst of his day-to-day. Will we allow God to interrupt us and to show himself to us in a beautiful, powerful way? No matter how dark the day Can God show up in Haiti right now? Will God show up in the lives of darkness and despair? I would pray so. Would God show up in the person who got the promotion this week? I would hope we would allow God to be seen and that we would see God in our lives. As you look at this passage of Scripture, and we're going to kind of unpack it here today, but as we look at this, I want us to see some elements that take place. Because He didn't just simply see 
He didn't just simply see the Lord. He experienced worship with the Lord. And the very first thing that I see in this passage is we see the word adoration. That's a fancy word. That's a big word that basically means praise. The very first thing that we see in the experience that happening in King uh, with, with Isaiah and his experience in seeing the Lord is that he sees the Lord high and lifted up. And let's read verse one on. It says, "And the king and he saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple." What a life-changing vision and a reality. But it doesn't stop there. Because it goes on and he, he shows us now how to worship. But it's not Isaiah's worship. It's actually the angels. The angels began to worship God. And it said this, And above there stood the seraphim, which is a word for angel. It means flame. The fiery angels are the angels that were of purity and beauty and power. Is what it symbolizes. They stood the seraphim, each with six wings, and the two covered his face, and the two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of your glory. I want us to understand something about what happens here in Isaiah's life. He's living a normal life, going through the normal processes of tragedy and mourning to King Uzziah's death. And in the midst of that normal experience, God interrupts him. And if we would allow God to interrupt our lives, then maybe we would see God. And as we see God, maybe we would learn from the angels today what the angels do, we ought to do. And the angels began to bring adoration, praise to God. Adoration is that element that, and worship ought to be that element of our life when we realize of who we are not, but yet we realize who God is. And there has to be a time in our life where we, we come to the, where God puts us in our right place. And adoration puts us in our right place as the created being, but, but that, that, that we also are elevating God to His, His, His rightful position. He's God and I'm not. And if we come into this worship service or any worship service and we make it about me and what I like and what I want, then we're missing it. And it really ought to be us coming in and just saying, you know, it's not about me. I'm not God. It's not about King Uzziah. He was a great king. It's about you, Lord. And I want my life, my song, my lips, my everything, I want it to be about you. And the best way we can learn of this today, guys, I want to speak sternly but lovingly to Grace Point family today. I think we we don't worship most of the time. I think we don't worship most of the time, not because God doesn't necessarily want to show up and interrupt our lives. Because we have made worship about us. And then what we have got to do is we've got to move beyond us and make it about Him. Is what my life is about, is my posture, is my, are my lips, is it about praising and bringing praise to Him? Because if it's not, I'm missing it. I'm missing out on what worship is. So let's take a lesson from the angels today. And as we look at them, we've got to realize that the angels were praising God with their life. Now, if you notice in that passage of Scripture, the, the, very, the very posture of their life, it says they had two wings. Now, this is a, a description of an angel. You want a description of an angel? Here it is. They had six wings. It says that two, they covered their face. With two, they covered their feet. 
and with two he flew. Now what is that all about? What's the whole covering of the face and covering of the feet from head to toe? What's that all about? What's the two wings on the back to fly? One of the things I think we need to understand about what real worship looks like, it's the humbleness of our own posture. The humility of our own posture before God. They could not look at God because He was so beautiful and awesome. Their feet, they, they had to, there had to be this line of separation because God is so powerful and so amazing. The, the, the two that covered His feet speak of His holiness. The two that covered their face speak of His glory. And then there are only two wings that, for serving. Listen, we've got to become in awe of God. Not in awe of Mike, in awe of the band, in awe of a drum, in awe of a dance, in awe of the media, in awe of that. We have got to somehow see God and become in awe of God. And I can't generate that, and I can't come up with enough words. And my greatest prayer this week has been this. God, I can never do justice to this passage. If you don't show up and interrupt our lives, I can never do justice to it. That we might literally look at our lives and say, from my head to my toes, how much do I humbly worship God? How are my hands worshiping God? How are my feet worshiping God? How are my ears worshiping God? How are my thoughts, my meditations, my desires, my job, my relationship from head to toe? How much does my life literally live in worship of God? From the head to the toe, the angels with their lives were worshiping God in adoration of Him. Paul goes so far as to say, and this really is getting to the minute issues of life when he says this. He says, and you can jot it down, 1 Corinthians 10.31, he says, whatever you eat or whatever you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. He's literally getting it down to the very morsels of food that we put in our mouth. Is it worshiping God? Is it honoring to God? Is it pleasing to God? From head to toe, what's the posture of our life? Is it worshiping God? The angels not only worship with their life, they worship with their lips. They couldn't keep their mouths shut. The Bible says that if we don't worship God, the rocks will cry out. I don't want to be in that situation where God literally has to call the rocks to cry out because I am not crying out to Him. Notice what it says in, in, in verse 3. It says, And one called to another. So they were singing to one another. They were declaring to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. There's not a place you can go on the earth. The darkest corner, the most impoverished people, the wealthiest people, His glory is there. And He's... Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. All we can do at Grace Point Church is create an atmosphere. Create a space. Allow time for you to bring your lips and your life to worship God. This building, this place, this time together is only space It's only time. You must fill it with the worship. The angels were declaring, Holy, 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 holy is the Lord God Almighty. 
Philip Yancey in his book, Church, Why Bother? He said, church exists primarily not to provide entertainment, encourage vulnerability, to build self-esteem, to facilitate friendships, but to worship God. If it fails, in that, it fails. The seraphim declared, holy, 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 three times. Now, my first thought on that was, it sounded like a broken record almost repeating itself needlessly. But when I studied the Hebrew language, I learned that in the Hebrew language, it's very a bland language. Even the words don't have vowels. So you, it's, 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 I can't go into the Hebrew to talk about it other than to say it's kind of a very bland language. It's not capitals and smaller. It's just one font, and really they all ran together. It's, it's a very guttural language. But anyway, when, when they want to emphasize something, They don't have exclamation marks or bold print. They didn't have anything like that. If you wanted to emphasize something, you would repeat it. If you really want to love someone, you love, 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 love someone. If you really believe something about someone, then you would say it again and again. Do you realize that the only attribute of God in all the Old Testament, in all the Bible, that's ever declared... In three-time repetition, is holy, holy, holy. The idea that God is so awesome and so set apart and so way, way, way beyond us, but yet somehow in that beyond state that He is, through Jesus Christ, He's made a way that we could connect with Him. But still, we can't, we can't just go there. We've got to realize that He is holy, holy, holy. And this is the song. That the angels were singing. Band, if you'll come back up here. This is the song that we will be singing when we get to heaven. It's literally, when you look in the book of Revelation, you find that the first song on the lips of every redeemed individual is found in the book of Revelation, chapter 4, verse 8 and 11. I want you to read this out loud with me. Ready? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The one who always was, who is, and who is still to come. You are worthy, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and they exist because you created what you pleased. I hope today that with your life and with your lips, you will learn to bring praise to God. Would you stand and do that right now? I don't know what the correct posture is when we get to heaven. Will we be standing? Will we be kneeling? Will we be falling on our face? I don't know. But worship, I'm afraid, in the American church has become so passive. And that's not how God designed it to be. Just look at the angels. Just watch them. Take your Bibles again back in Isaiah. Because the worship doesn't end there. The adoration was the, was the launching pad. And you, can you imagine what was going on in Isaiah's mind as he, as he goes to the temple? Maybe for comfort. Maybe for wondering, what's next, God? Our nation now is without a king. Can, can you just put yourself vicariously into his mind for a moment and just, just think with him? What's, he, what's going on? He's wanting comfort. He's wanting direction. He's wanting something. And he doesn't get that. He, he doesn't get the comfort, but he gets the confrontation. 
Because the, the second element of this worship experience for, for him was not just adoration, but it was revelation. It was in this moment that he sees like he's never seen before. He's seen the Lord high and lifted up. Sure, that's, that, that'll knock your socks off in, in and of itself. But, but he goes even further. He, he sees the holiness of God. And again, I can't with my limited vocabulary even begin to put that into words. You're just going to have to go to a quiet spot in your life and think on that one. But in the midst of seeing God high and lifted up, in the midst of seeing the holiness of God, Isaiah sees himself. There's the revelation of God. There's also the revelation to himself, about himself. When you read this, the account in, in, in verse 4, it says it like this, The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. There's our verse for smoke machines in the church, okay? Verse 5. And I said, Woe is me. The first words out of Isaiah's mouth. The angels had been praising and declaring God's holiness. But the very first word out of Isaiah's mouth is, Woe is me. He saw something as he saw the holiness of God. He also saw himself. And what he saw about himself he didn't like. When you come here on Sunday, we have times of adoration. But we also have times when we open God's Word. And there are times that you hopefully will hear a message and it will comfort you. Somebody said it like this, the job of the pastor is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comforted. And there will be times in your life when you will come in here and you will feel a little bit uneasy about your position in life, about your attitude this past week, about your words that you've spoken to somebody that you're supposedly supposed to love and care for dearly. And all of a sudden, you encounter God's holiness through a song, through a message, through a testimony, through a graphic, through a video, through something. And all of a sudden, you have to say with the prophet Isaiah, woe is me. And he goes on. Notice what he says, woe is me for I am lost. It wasn't the angels declaring it. It wasn't God himself declaring it. It was him looking at himself as he looked at the very face of God, the very beauty and the holiness of God. And it was him himself in his own heart who said, I am lost. I don't look across this room today to any of you and say you are lost. But maybe God's Spirit does. I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes, what, 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 what was it that caused him? Because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When we have an encounter with God, and the revelation of God is, is His beauty and His power and His holiness and His love and His compassion, all of a sudden it begins to show things about ourselves that maybe don't line up. And all of a sudden we're going to have to see ourselves as we really are. Now we can run from it. The reality is it's still there. The best thing we can do is embrace our own weakness. And hopefully in the midst of that embracing that and identifying it and calling it what it is, 
we will experience what Isaiah experienced. At this point, we don't see that yet. We just see him declaring who he is in light of who God is. And the irony is, is that he specifically names the problem of his life. He says, I am a man of unclean lips. Now, I want you to notice this about Isaiah and notice this about confession, uh, that, that confession and conviction that comes from God is very specific. Now, Satan will also try to heap into your life guilt. All right? You've got to be able to distinguish between the two. Because when God convicts us of something, when he shows us something about himself and we're not in line with himself, then what he is doing is he is convicting us of something about who he is and about who we are not. And, and, and what Isaiah saw was he saw how dirty his lips were, how the words, I don't know what he was saying, I don't know what kind of blabbering tongue he had, gossip he had, backbiting he had. I don't know what he said if he just couldn't control his tongue. There's so many people struggle with that, according to the book of James. But, but there was a specific issue that, that, that was not right. It was needed to be made right. And, and God convicts us of the specific. Satan guilts us in generalities. If you're here today and you say, I'm a horrible, no good, rotten scoundrel, that's the devil, okay? If you go through life living in this heap of guilt, living in guilt that you're horrible and God could never love you and that nobody could ever love you, that's not God talking to you. That's the devil talking to you. He wants you to feel like a heap of trash, a sack of human flesh. All right? It just wants you to, that's, that's what he wants you to feel like. God wants you to see your individual life. And as you look at every compartment of your life, making sure it's in line with him. For some of you, you may have to say with Isaiah, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. For some of you, you may have to say, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a woman of unclean hands. Or I'm a person of an unclean heart. Or my eyes have been looking at things that my eyes ought not be looking at. My ears have been hearing things that I ought not be hearing. My feet have been taking me to places I ought not be going. Or from places I should be going. You can invert these any way you want to. But when we see the holiness and the beauty of God, there will be a revelation that will come. It's not only of Him, but it's of us. And the irony is is that it was Isaiah who becomes one of the greatest prophets of the nation of Israel. But he did not become a great prophet of the nation of Israel until first of all his lips got clean. That is a major point of the message. That if God shows you something in your life that isn't right, if he shows you something about himself, if he shows you something about you and it isn't right, it may be because God wants to use that very area of your life. And the prophet who would end up speaking to the nations, the prophet who would end up influencing a nation, here it is. It may have, it may have been Isaiah's greatest strength was his lips and his ability to communicate, communicate and articulate truth to people. But yet it was dirty, it wasn't right, and it had to be made right. For some of you, you have the ability to make money, but yet money has taken over your life. Or some of you have a very gift, a great gift in leadership, but yet you couldn't spell servant leadership. For some of you, you, you have this knack for, for uh, being able to do things, but yet in that doing things, you've done things that are not of God. And God is pointing right now into your life and you say, see, this is what I'm saying. This area is beautiful and I want to use it for me, but it's not for me right now. It's still for you. 
And that's exactly what God does in the life of Isaiah. He says, I want your lips, Isaiah. But they're dirty. They're not right. See, real worship will revolutionize your life. What is He wanting to use in your life that it's not usable right now because it's dirty? And you need to say with the prophet Isaiah, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm lost. I'm unclean. What is He revealing about Himself? And what is He revealing about yourself? The last element of every true biblical worship experience. First is adoration. You get into God's presence and you see Him. You experience Him. You taste and see the Lord as good as the Bible says. And you experience that holiness, that love, that mercy, whatever He shows Himself to you on that day. But then you, He reveals not only who He is, but He also reveals who you are or who you are not. And at that moment, He begins to transform you. Adoration, revelation will, will lead to transformation. Real worship revolutionizes our lives. Where God convicts and God will be very specific. Is this area of your life dirty? He will show it to you. When He shows it to you, then you confess it. When you confess it, then you have now begun the change process. This is the value of true Christianity. Is that it begins to change us from the inside out, not from the outside in. It's not putting on some plastic covering and coming to church and looking good and holy. It's allowing God to go into the depths of who we are and show us who we, we are and show us in light of who He is. And in that revelational moment, we begin a change process, a morphing process that happens. And this is what it says in verse, verse 6. It says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from, with, thong, with tongs, from the altar, and, and he touched his mouth. There was the problem, was his mouth, and there, there's where the, uh, the, the touch happens, the mouth. And he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. The very issue of your life that God may be speaking into your heart right this very second, this millisecond, the very thing that He wants to enter into your life and touch and purify and remove the guilt and cleanse and make right again. The problem is, again, we play at worship. This is what one person said, Gordon Dahl. He said, most middle class Americans tend to worship their work, work at their play, and play at their worship. As a result, their meanings... And values are distorted, their relationships disintegrated faster than they have than they can keep them in repair. Their lifestyle resembles the cast of characters in search of a plot. We play at worship. Oh to God that we would see happen to us internally what God wants to do. In Isaiah, he said, your sins are atoned for. A new life was given to Isaiah. A new beginning, a new set of lips, if you will, were given to Isaiah. Well, that was powerful. That's good because if you know what what happens in the very next words, in verse 8 it says, And he heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for me? What did Isaiah say? Here 
I am. Send me. Now. Now we're ready. Now we're ready to rock on. Now we're ready to be a prophet. Now we're ready to shape a nation. Now we're ready to influence kings and kingdoms. Now we're ready to speak truth and love. And now we're ready because you've experienced God in adoration and revelation and in transformation. God has a place for him in his kingdom's work because he worshiped God and allowed God to change his life. My challenge to all of us today and every single Sunday as we come in for a time of adoration, as we come in for a time of revelation, will we allow God to do a transformation of our life? Or will we just merely play at our worship again and again week after week? Real worship will rock your world, change your life. It will revolutionize you. I take you back just a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago, when Lori and I shared, or I shared the, the disturbing of my own heart and the, about, uh, about a service that we were going to have related to orphans. And again, I felt myself as kind of a, as a supporting actor to the, to the whole schema of things. And all of a sudden, as I got into God's Word, and preparing this little short 10-minute message is all it was, in the midst of other circumstances around, all of a sudden I find myself headlong in the midst of a call to take care of orphans. And it was one verse. It was James chapter 1, verse 27. If you remember, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this. You visit the orphans. And it was from that revelation... And it's from that worship experience of that revelation of His truth and the lack in my life that Lori and I began to open up our lives to be willing to go. And, of course, you know, went to Zambia, that whole process, and that didn't happen the way we thought it was going to happen. We don't know what's going to happen next. But I can tell you this. Lori and I are having conversations on a weekly, weekly basis saying, how are we going to help with the orphans? We've got creative ideas and ways that we're thinking. Tonight, we're going to have a whole conversation about that here at 6 o'clock. Invite you back. It's not a commercial for that, but this is what it is. It's speaking out into our lives that what real worship is, is not coming and finding a place that we like. It's finding and coming a place where I encounter God and God encounters me. And I walk away the better, and He walks away the exalted one. That's beautiful, godly, biblical worship.